Thanks, kids. Well, let's open up our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And any uh, kids here going to children's church, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church. Hebrews chapter 4. It's on page 1186 in a pew Bible. Today we're studying Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. So my children uh, have informed me that the kids at school are not afraid to go to the principal. And I was surprised when they told me this because when I was a kid, that was the worst. That, That was the most terrifying prospect of all, being sent to the principal. So, so I was baffled. I, I said, well, why, don't, why, are you scared to go the, why aren't they scared to go to the principal? You know, and, and they said, well, they go, all the principal does is just talk to you. He never does anything. You just go and he gives you a lecture and then you go back to your class. And I was like, yeah, I, I can see why that wouldn't you know, really be that scary. You know, in, in the principal's and the teacher's defense, probably if they ever did do anything, you know, the parents would sue the school or something. Now, contrast this state of affairs with a story that Pastor Seth told me when he was teaching in a school in Uganda uh, when he was a missionary over there before coming uh, to, to serve with us. And when Seth was in Uganda, he was in this school and it had a thousand students. The students would gather for a weekly assembly and the headmaster would stand up to speak and he was this, I guess, this small little thin guy and he spoke about this level right here, not very loud. He was very articulate And the whole room was deadly silent. And if there was the slightest rustle in the room, he would simply look that direction while speaking, and it would suddenly die down. And he would speak and give announcements. And then sometimes he would uh, bring up some students who had uh, broken, made some serious infractions against the rules. He'd bring them up in front of the group, and they would be swatted with a cane. And then they would go sit down. And then he would continue to speak. And it's amazing. He had the attention of the entire school. Because it wasn't just empty words. What he had to say really mattered and had consequence for these students. You know, when God speaks, it's not empty words. What he has to say to us really matters. It's not empty. It's full of significance and consequence for our lives. We need to listen to His Word. And yet, that's, that's what we struggle to do because I think we're more like kids in my children's school where they just kind of tune out all the talk. You know, our world is full of so much talk. There's talk radio and there's blogs and TV advertisements. We have our MP3 players in. And, you know, to live in the modern world is to live in a world uh, absolutely saturated with talk coming at you and information. So to survive in the modern world... Uh, and to keep your sanity, you have to adapt the ability to filter. And, and we have high filtering power. We're able to just filter out all this noise and all this information coming at us. The problem is, we filter out God's Word, too. And yet, that's the one thing that we shouldn't filter out. We filter it out to our own peril. Because God's Word is significant. His words matter. Or, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, For the Word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Here we have uh, perhaps one of the more famous passages in Hebrews talking about the power of God's Word, that it's a word we need to listen to. But before we get dig in and, and sort of pull apart the different phrases in verses 12 and 13, let's just remember where it is in the flow of the argument. Because if you've been here the last couple Sundays, we've been tracing an argument that really began back in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, really. And it's been an argument saying, beware of falling into the sins and unbelief that the Israelites exhibited when they were in the wilderness with Moses. The Israelites came to the edge of promised land and rather than trusting God's Word and obeying Him and going into the promised land, they they rebelled and they said, we want to go back to Egypt. And so really the message of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, verse 11 is don't be like those Israelites. Have faith in God and obey His promises. Don't become cowardly and fall back. You need to enter His rest. As it says in chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore make every effort... Every resource you have needs to be marshaled in order to do what? To enter that rest. In other words, to enter into a saving relationship with God, to rejoice in Him and to have hope of eternal life in heaven where the rest is completely fulfilled. So that's the command. Make every effort to enter His rest so that none of you will fall by following their example of disobedience. And then we get our verse. For the Word of God is living and active. So verses 12 to 13 are going to give us one big final reason why we need to listen to what God says. Why should we listen to this command to enter His rest? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God's Word matters. What He says is significant. We had better listen to what He says. So that's the context. So now let's, let's look at this idea of the Word of God. And let's look at some of these adjectives used to describe it. Living, active, sharp penetrating. Let's, let's just look at these each in turn. First of all, it says the Word of God is living. The Bible is alive. It's a living document. It's full of spiritual life and power. It's not just a dusty old book. It's, it's got something going on in it. You know, the Bible is the one book where you start reading it and then you suddenly realize it's reading you. It's a living book. Um, in fact, this idea of a living book Word actually ties in with the author of Hebrews. One of his very favorite designations for God, he likes to call God the living God. Look back at chapter 3, verse 12. He says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Or look at chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then? Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Or this chilling one in chapter 10, verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So He's the living God. He's not a statue. Like so many of the people worshipped back then, and even like people worship today, God's not just a statue. God is not simply a metaphor or an idea 
or a personification of hopes and dreams. He's not just sort of a a, a mental construct that we use. God is not simply a coping mechanism that helps us deal with issues in our lives. He is the living God. He's alive. You know, we sang that about Jesus in that song, uh, He's Alive. You know, how appropriate. You know, alive, alive. We're saying that Christ is alive, that He was crucified, He was buried, He was raised on the third day. And so, from the very beginning of Christianity, the, the apostles proclaimed that Jesus is literally, physically, actually, really, truly alive. That He's not in the grave, that He rose. So we worship a living God. We worship a living Christ. So when they speak, they speak a living word. Because it's His word. Again, look at verse 12. For the word of God is living. It's alive. All right? It's not, this isn't just some dusty old book that you find in an antique bookstore and you know, blow the dust off it and, you know, what's this old document? This is a living book. It's amazing how it works. So even though the New Testament was written uh, a little under 2,000 years ago, and even though the Old Testament began to be written 3,500 years ago, and even though our modern culture couldn't be more different than the cultural characteristics of ancient Near Eastern agrarian life, yet somehow when we read this book, the horizons between those two worlds are brought together and we feel as though this book is speaking to us. Because it's a living word. It's an amazing kind of thing. Look back at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, this is an introduction to Psalm 95. He's about to quote Psalm 95. If you've been here the last couple Sundays, you know that Psalm 95 is a pivotal text throughout these chapters of Hebrews 3 and 4. But if you look at, uh, look, look at Psalm 95, it's in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Notice how he begins the quotation. Look at that. So... As the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes it, Psalm 95. Now, isn't that interesting? As the Holy Spirit says. Notice two things there. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit who's talking. You know, wait a minute, I thought, I thought King David or one of the psalmists wrote this. And now you're saying the Holy Spirit wrote it? Which one is it? Yeah, it's both. There was a human author writing this down. But the doctrine of inspiration is that, that God was speaking through the people who were actually writing the book. That God was using their personalities, their language, their uh, characteristics, their idioms, their idiosyncrasies. And God was superintending that so that what was written down for us is very much the very Word of God. It's inspired. And it's unlike any other book. So, so he can quote Psalm 95 and say, this is what the Holy Spirit said even though we know it was also written by a human author. Notice the other thing about this. As the Holy Spirit, look at the verb, says. Not said. It's present tense. In Greek, it's present tense. But wait a minute, I thought that was written like a thousand years before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Holy Spirit is saying this to us. It's a living word. God's word has legs. It doesn't just it wasn't just said back then and just kind of sits there like an artifact. It keeps speaking to us. And, and we could even say to us today, Hebrews says to us, the Holy Spirit is saying. It's this living Word. So we need to listen to God's Word. We need to obey it. This is God speaking to us when we open up His Word. Um, you know, this is not to be trifled with. When He says in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. That is being said to us as well. 
We need to make every effort. God is speaking to us. You know, if we want to hear God's voice, we've got to open up his word. This is, this is his living word. It's not just an old dead document, right? So uh, we have to read the Bible on our own. Some of us, you know, we don't even read the Bible on our own. We don't go to a Bible study. There's so many Bible studies offered in this church. There's Bible studies offered in other churches. You can get Bible studies all over the South Shore. You know, give us a call. We'll point you to some. We'll tell you other churches that have them. There's Bible studies we could use. Some of us, even during the message, even during a sermon, we don't open the Word. You need to open it and look at the words. Don't just listen to me. Read the Word for yourself. Because this is God's living Word. And so we, we don't read His Word. We don't do a Bible study. We don't open the Word even when it's being preached. And then we say, you know, I don't know. God doesn't seem very real to me. I just wonder if there's really a God. Like, well, well, open the Word. <laughs> You're not going to hear His voice if you keep the book shut. We've got to open the Word to hear the voice of the living God. You have to read His Word because the Word of God is alive. It's unlike any other document. Notice something else about His Word. Number two, it's a living Word. Number two, it's active. It's an active Word. Therefore, the Word of God is living and active. Now, that word active, it doesn't just mean active, you know, like a two-year-old is active. You know, we're jumping around. It, what it means is, the, what the Greek word means is that it actually takes action upon us. That it is effective, that it's powerful. Like I said, you think you're reading the Bible and suddenly it's reading you. It's taking action upon you and you find yourself being uh, addressed and affected. It, it gets things done. This word isn't just ink on a page, but somehow by God's Holy Spirit, it does something to us. Let me put it this way. The Word of God is the opposite of a campaign stump speech where a candidate is given their... You know, we've heard these for the last several months on both sides. They're given their stump speeches and they stand up there, we're going to fix education and we're going to stop global warming and we're going to save jobs and we're going to create jobs. You know, and you hear all this talk, right? And, and it's inspiring and, you know, both candidates have the ability to inspire and talk. But, you know, at least for me, I step back from it and I just sometimes think, how are you going to do that? Like, what are you actually going to do? <laughs> What's the plan? And how do you think that plan is actually going to accomplish th- this sort of utopian vision you have for, for renewing you know, the country? I hope it works. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, we need something. We're struggling. But it's like, how are you going to do all those things? Either candidate, you know, tell me. G- give me something more than just rhetoric. But God's Word is not like that. It's not just like someone spouting off big ideas. It actually affects us. When God says something, it comes to pass. He brings it to bear on our lives. It's an amazing thing. It's powerful. It's not just empty words. Um, God's Word uh, uh, changes and and it shapes things. Uh, For instance, look look, look at this. Look at 1 Peter. Put a bookmark here. Turn over a couple books to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. It's on page uh, 1200. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Just a for instance of God's powerful Word. He says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. So how do people become Christians? How do we cross over from unbelief to faith? 
And the answer is that God has to create a new birth inside of us through the living Word. And that if you take the Word out of the equation, people don't come to faith in Christ. That's the vehicle through which God's living power comes into our lives and changes us. Uh, And so when God says, you know, back in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, so that none of you will fall by following their disobedience. He means it. His Word will accomplish that. When God says there's a heaven to be gained through faith in Christ, that means that's actually going to happen. And when God says if you turn away from Christ, you will fall into judgment, that will actually happen. It's not just empty threats and words. God's Word accomplishes what He says it will accomplish. And so I think it, you know, that just tells me that we have to keep God's Word at the center of the life of our church. And that when we pull God's Word out of the life of the church, we're in a sense sort of unplugging it. You know, we're, we're taking the, the power source out and unplugging it from the wall. When we take God's Word out of our children's ministries or out of the youth ministry or out of the pulpit, you know, the church dies. It becomes powerless. I mean, it could still exist. You can still have a nice white building or a nice whatever shaped building and you can still have people coming and liking to socialize and there can still be traditions and liturgies and hymns that you know, bring back familiar memories, but it's lost its spiritual oomph. You know? Have you ever been in a church like that where it's like you know, all the rituals are going on and the place looks nice and there's people there, but, but it, it just lacks that spiritual power? And I can almost guarantee, listen for the Word of God. Where's the Word of God? You pull that plug and the power comes out of the church and it becomes an empty shell. Plug in the Word of God and God's power comes back into a congregation's life. So we have to keep the Word of God plugged in. My concern is that one of the weaknesses of evangelicalism today in America is that, as I've said this before, I think we're losing our nerve about the Word of God. And we think that that somehow we need something, like we need the Word of God plus something else in order to affect and change lives. Uh, I was reading this magazine. I almost, you know, just did a, a you know, cough. I mean, it was just so jarring. This is a worship, Technologies for a Worship magazine. And they're writing this whole sort of cover stories about lighting systems in the church. You know, that's good. You've got to have lighting. I mean, in other words, you can't read your Bible, right? So you need to have lighting in the church. But get this, the lighting is, the reality is, lighting has a lot to do with developing the intimacy and comfort level in a facility. For those people who are fortunate enough to work with lighting design, they will consistently advocate its importance as a creative outlet. To color the room is essentially to create the mood, which can be as important a component of the worship experience as hearing what the pastor is saying. What? You know? Presuming the pastor speaking the word, how can you, you know? But I just wanted to say, that's not a weird thing in evangelicalism. That's mainstream thinking. That what you've got to do is get the right gel lights and the right multimedia going on behind the words in the song. And, and you know, you have to have the right vibe. You, you need to be funny and, and sort of entertaining in worship. You don't ever want to be serious or make people feel uncomfortable. And, you know, this is, how, this is what pastors are taught. This is kind of the standard fare coming at us for how to grow your church. And what I read in Scripture is that the growth God's looking for in the church is in our hearts. 
growth in character, growth in depth, growth in holiness. And if we're not growing in depth and holiness and character, then how many, what does it matter how many bodies there are in the room? You know? If people are growing in depth and holiness and love for Christ, then yeah, that's exciting to have more and more numerically going into that experience. But where's, the point is, where's the power for this going to happen? Is it going to happen by us tweaking the technologies and tweaking our vibe and the packaging and the marketing of the congregation? No, the power is where it has always been. It is in the living and active Word of God. Take this out and you've unplugged the church from its power source. Bring the Scriptures back. And I I argue even the most struggling, dying, backwards congregation can be reformed and revived because God's Word gives life. That's, That's how it works. So it has to stay at the center of the congregation's life. When I was thinking about God's Word as living, him, he's literally speaking to us and active the way it affects us. I, uh, I, I thought of the story of St. Augustine of Hippo, the great church father, 4th century guy, you know, one of the towering figures in all of church history. But I don't know if you've ever heard the story of how he became a Christian. You know, before he became St. Augustine, he was kind of Augustine the party boy, basically. He was just, he was a party boy. He lived the wildlife he, in every sense of the word. And, and he, he wasn't fulfilled by that. He was trying to find answers, so he would dabble around in different philosophies and religions and checking out different things, but didn't really settle on anything. And so he was just kind of lost. He was this lost soul who was living this empty party lifestyle, couldn't find truth wherever he looked for it. He was just, and one day he was sitting under a tree. He was, uh, you know, distraught in his spirit because he didn't know which way to turn. And he heard some kids, he heard the voice of children singing nearby. And they were singing this song, Take up and read. Take up and read. And he was like, what kind of children's song is that? And then he suddenly felt as if God was saying to him through those kids' voices, take up the Bible and read what you see. So he went and he picked up the Bible, because he'd been exploring Christianity a little bit too. And he opened the Bible and he turned to Romans. In fact, let's read what St. Augustine read. Put a bookmark here. Turn to Romans 13. Read what this party boy read. Romans 13. It's on page uh, 1124. Romans 13, verse 13. He did one of those Bible roulette things. You know, we just open up the Bible and read a verse. So God was in it. First Corinthians. Romans chapter 13, verse 13. This is what his eye fell upon. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he read those words, God's active voice was speaking to him. God's powerful word was addressing him. And his soul was changed. He was what we call born again. He was renewed. And faith sprung into his soul. And he he became a follower of Christ. As the word of God put its finger right on his problem and also gave him the solution. You are a great sinner, Augustine. And you need a great Savior. Clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. So now going back to Hebrews... That really, I think, is a nice segue into the next characteristic of God's Word. Number one, it's living. It's God, it is God's Word. God is 
actively addressing us. It is active. In other words, it's effective. We say in theology, it's effectual. It, it will accomplish its purposes. And then the third thing we see is that it judges. That, that the particular action the Word of God often takes in our lives, the particular effect it has on us, is often to judge us like a sword piercing us. Is this powerful imagery. Look again at verse 12. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Uh, you know, that's just a way of saying it. It goes deep within and can get to the very heart of us. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's like a sharp, double-edged sword. I, when I was reading this thing about the sword, I was visualizing a sword I'd seen recently. Um, a couple of months ago, I went with my family down to Manhattan because my sister-in-law lives there and we were visiting her and and we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And at the Met, if you go to the Met, you know, there's a lot of cool things to see. But the thing you have to see, the thing I always love to go see, is the arms and armor section. Oh, I mean, I can spend all day in there, you know, just glued to the, the glass windows. My son and I are going, I mean, there's plate mail, there's halberds, battle axes, spears, broadswords, you know. We're like, oh, and you know, my son, my son's like, hey, dad, if we were in a fight right now, which one would you want? And I'm like, oh, I would want that one, you know. And so, but we came to this one, this one Glaston section. They have a whole sort of corner, and it's full of these really beautiful rapiers. And if you know a rapier, it's, um, it's not a big hacking broadsword, but a rapier is a fencing sword. It's long, thin, double-edged, you know, hard, and, and it's just very narrow and long. And, and it's not the kind of thing that you use, you know, to hack down on somebody and chop them. It, it's a very elegant weapon that's used in fencing. And you don't chop, but you, you know, you pierce with it, right? And so you wait for the opportunity in your opponent when he lets down his defenses, and it pierces. And it doesn't leave a big hacking gash. It's just a little hole in the person. But that, you know, that, that sword... <laughs> yeah, so that, that sword, <laughs> it, it pierces. It can go through joints. It can go through tendons. It can go between rib cages. And it can go right into the heart and pierce the heart. That's how God's Word is. It just pierces and it goes through all of our rationalizations and self-justifications and all the you know, airs we put on to each other and, and all the, the smoke we blow to each other. And God's Word just pierces through all that to the very heart and suddenly our soul is at the tip of God's sword. And we feel that piercing touch of God's Word. You know, have you ever felt that from God's Word? Have you ever, have you ever heard a biblical sermon from a preacher where you felt as if the preacher was speaking directly to you. Have you ever had that experience? It's as if the room went dark and there was a spotlight shining from the pulpit on you. Have you ever had that weird experience? I've had it. It's terrifying and wonderful simultaneously to have that experience of God's Word speaking to you. You know, and you say, that sermon was just for me. I have to say, um, you know, people give me feedback about preaching and this is part of being a pastor. And I'm thankful that one of the things I hear frequently in feedback is, wow, Jeremy, you're talking directly to me today. And I, I just think every time, I'm like, no, I wasn't. I don't even know what's going on with you. I haven't talked to you for a month. What do you mean I'm talking to you? I wasn't talking to you. I'm just preaching this thing I worked up during the week, you know. I, I don't know what's going on with you. You know, do we have cameras in your house? No. We don't know. 
It's not like we do some extensive marketing research during the week where we send out emails and you go online to fill out a survey. And through that, I determine your felt needs. And therefore, I know statistically, if I preach on this topic, it will affect the most people. You don't do that. We just preach the Word. I don't speak to you. If you feel that, that piercing feeling, it's because God's Word is addressing your heart. And it can be anyone standing here, but as long as they're opening up the sword case... The sword is going to pierce and do its work. And when we feel God's Word piercing our souls, what should we do? Listen and obey. Do what it's telling you to do. When you feel that piercing force. I was reading, um, I was going back and remembering the story by John Bunyan. He was one of the uh, famous Puritans. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, but again, before he became a Christian and eventually became a pastor, he was, he was a wild boy, too. He was kind of a party boy back as it was in those days. And, uh, and he would, on the Sabbath day, when, you know, especially in Puritan culture where you're supposed to rest, uh, he was out partying, playing games, and being wild. And it says, I, I love this, he says he went to a sermon one day in church. He said, Wherefore, I fell in my conscience under his sermon, thinking and believing that he made that sermon on purpose to show me my evil doing. You know, that's 400 years ago. Same thing. It's the living Word of God. hasn't died. Same Word. It has nothing to do with the preacher's oratorical ability or anything like that. If the Word is being opened, if the sword is being drawn from its scabbard, then we are all, we are all at risk to have that wonderful experience of being brought to life by being stabbed by the Word. To be stabbed by the Word and brought to life is an amazing paradox. But God's Word, it pierces us. Uh, when you read God's Word, I know some of you here struggle to read the Bible. I talked earlier about reading the Bible and you're like, I don't know what to do. That's just something I, I don't do very well, Pastor. I don't know how to read the Bible. You know, Do I read a chapter? Do I read three chapters? Do I start in Genesis? Where do I go? How do I read the Bible? Let me tell you how I read the Bible. And this may not sound very uh, scholarly or whatever, but this is just what I've, how I've always read the Bible. I'm not talking about when I study it for a sermon, but just for my own like personal devotional reading. Like right now, I'm reading through the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament, and it's really amazing. And so I'm just kind of reading through it. This is how I read the Bible when I read it for myself. I pick it up and I read it until the sword pierces me. And then I stop and I think about what it's saying. That's what I do. Sometimes I read up the Bible, I pick up the Bible, and I read the first verse, and I feel the sword. And I'm like, okay, that's what God wants to say to me today. Sometimes it's three chapters. And, but after the third chapter, this argument builds, and I'm following it, and then it comes to a verse, and chew, the sword is there. But I just read until I feel that wonderful experience of God addressing me directly through His Word. And then I stop, and I focus on whatever it was. And then, then I go to prayer, and I start praying based upon what touched me in His Word, what pierced my soul. Sometimes it's a convicting word about sin, or some, you know, <laughs> commonly some bad attitude I have, or some way I've you know, treated people that I need to repent of. Sometimes it's a word of encouragement and hope that pierces my soul. Sometimes it's a vision or a calling that I haven't been paying attention to. And God is saying, Jeremy, look bigger. Think more about what I can do. You have too small a picture of me. But whatever it is, I wait until that sword pierces my soul. And then I say, okay. Then I start praying. And, you know, I often go on my prayer walks and I pray for you. And I'll, I'll take whatever the word was saying to me and I'll pray the same thing for you. But I just let that word sort of guide me. And it's amazing how faithful God is with His Word. It's a piercing sword. We are all 
open before that sword. It cuts right through us. And someday, verse 13, we will stand accountable before the Word. So it's living. It's God actually speaking. It's powerful. It's not just empty words, but it accomplishes its purposes. And one of the purposes, number three, is that it's piercing and judging. And we had better listen to what the piercing word is saying because, number four, someday we will be held accountable. Look at verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We must give an account before God someday. Everything is uncovered. That's the Greek word for naked. Everything's naked before God. I put on my Sunday best for you. You put on your Sunday best for me. But God sees our Monday through Saturday worst. He sees it all. We can't fake Him out or, or sell Him. He knows who we really are. It says in verse 13, it's, we're uncovered and laid bare before Him. That word laid bare is a very rare Greek word. It's a really interesting word. Since the early days of the church, people have argued over what that word means. It's sort of a debate about that. Uh, some people have argued that it describes a wrestling move. You know, the Greeks are really into wrestling. And it's a move where you grab your opponent's head and, and pull it back, and so he's kind of laid bare. Uh, another argument is that it's a word that's used to describe the sacrificial system. So, and it's kind of grisly, but, you know, they, had to, they sacrificed animals and killed animals to eat them. And so they would take the, you know, the goat's head or the sheep's head and they would pull back its neck so it was laid bare so they could just take the, you know, the knife and, and slaughter the animal. So it's this idea of being exposed, like no defense, you're just open. And that's what it will be like someday before God when we have to give an account before Him. We will be naked, we'll be exposed. It's like when the patrolman pulls you over, he knows how fast you are going, he has it on the radar gun, you know how fast you are going. And the patrolman just comes to the window and says, what's the story? Give me the accounting for what your behavior is. And someday there will be an accounting before God. And all will be naked, all will be exposed. And I won't be able to rationalize my behavior or justify it or blame it on my family or blame it on my circumstances. Or, you know, God, I was dealt a bad hand and therefore I, you know, I shouldn't be accountable for my life. It will, will all be exposed before Him. And what will we say on that day? And so, verse 11, let us therefore today make every effort to enter that rest, to enter the promised land, to enter eternal life with God. Don't hold back. Give it your all. Put your faith in Christ. For those of us who are Christians, I just want to urge you to press on in your faith. Some of you are very tired this morning. Some of you uh, don't even believe that you can cross the finish line. But I want to tell you that God is able and you need to trust in Christ and keep pressing on. Even if you have fallen on your face as a Christian and you just wonder, you know, God's done with me. I want you to get up and I want you to keep pressing on with your faith and repent of your sin and move forward with the Lord. And maybe some of us here have never come to Christ. You know, we've been talking about this for three, four Sundays now here in Hebrews. And I just want to urge you to press on to enter that rest. Be sure that you're saved. Because if we just stand before God someday with our lives laid bare, and He's like, what's going on? And we don't have Christ. We're going to be hopeless before Him. But Jesus died to save sinners like us. He died to enable lost, rebellious people to enter eternal life. 
So I, um, I just want to end this service with a prayer, this, this sermon with a prayer. And I just want to do a little, a little something different. I, I want to lead you in a prayer, uh, especially if you've never put your faith in Christ. I'd just like to lead you in a simple prayer of expressing that. Um, it's it's going to be kind of like I do when I do weddings. You know, when I do weddings here, I'll say to the, the, the groom, you know, I, Fred, I, Fred, take you, Sally, take you, Sally. You know, and I say a line and then they repeat it back. So I'm going to pray a prayer like that. I'm just going to pray a few lines and then I'll leave a little pause. And if you want to express, take those words and make them your own, express them in your own heart to the Lord, I, I would just invite you to, to do that. So let's bow our heads together. God, I believe that you are the living God. And I confess that I have rejected your word to me and have disobeyed you. And I know that someday I will give an account and will fall. But I thank you that Jesus came and died for me. And I now ask Him to forgive me and to save me from my sins. And Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here too who already know You, that You would just pick them up and encourage them. Help us not to grow weary, but to keep pressing on toward eternal life. God, help us to take Your Word seriously. I I just pray that there would be a renewed love for Your Word this morning and delight in Your Word. And I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. stand together. We want to respond to the Lord this morning, to his word. Let's together ask him to revive us.
for you. Uh, they've been praying for us this last hour. The whole time we're in here, they're praying for us. So if you'd like prayer after the service, come over here and see Peter and Linda. They'd love to pray with you confidentially about you know, anything that's on your minds. And I hope you come back tonight at 5.30 for our Thanksgiving service, which is a, a unique service where we just give thanks to God. And it's a chance to publicly profess thanks to God for blessings He's put in your life this last year. So I hope you can come back for that tonight at 5.30. It's an awesome time. And uh, John, would you mind closing the service in prayer? Thanks for your leading today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, your word is not empty, but it is living and active, cutting directly to our hearts, Father. We pray that uh, as we hear your word, as we understand it, Father, that uh, we would listen and obey. We would be prepared to follow you. Take away the things that are keeping us from you, Father. Anything that uh, would pull us away, just set it aside so we can focus on you. Respond to you, Father. Make us the people that you want us to be. Work in our lives this week. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen.